is Bloomberg Surveillance. I've been thinking the 10 years in a one and a half, two and a half trading band, and that's where we've been, and I think that's where we're going to stay. I think there's a growing sentiment that maybe negative rates aren't all that they were supposed to be in terms of stimulating growth and inflation. A precondition for a bear market is not necessarily a recession. Bear markets can occur even if the U.S. fails to fall into recession. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning. I'm Michael McKee. It is 7 a.m. on Wall Street, where risk is kind of off today. The screen read, though, not overwhelmingly so. Today on Surveillance, a debate of sort. Gary Schilling in a moment, who sees the red as a harbinger. David Kelly of J.P. Morgan Funds, who is an optimist. And this is Must Listen. Bill and Melinda Gates at 8 a.m. in their annual letter for the Gates Foundation, a stern, stark warning, Tom, about the risks of climate change that is going to be must listen. They have actually done it. They're one of the few that has put money where mouth is an action. And it's a, a, a beautiful thing. I mean, we don't understand what he has done about the virology and microbiology of the world. He has and done the two a lot. of them need major cred for that. Interesting uh, letter this time uh, aimed at young people. Uh, it seems to be the market these days, from Bernie Sanders to Bill Gates. Anyway, Bill Gates at 8 a.m. on surveillance. Markets on this Tuesday, as I mentioned, are lower. The stock 600 uh, by a point. That's four-tenths of a percent on that index. The DAX is off by 78. That's your worst performer of the day, uh, eight-tenths of a percent. The uh, IFO Institute's Business Climate Index dropping to 105.7 in February from 107.3 led lower by expectations. U.S. futures are lower. S&P futures by two points, a tenth of a percent, a tenth drop for Dow futures. They're down by 10 points. NASDAQ futures off by 10 points. That's two tenths on that index. Bonds a touch weaker, actually, with the 10-year yield up to 1.78 percent, the five-year at 1.25, 76 basis points for your two-year. And, of course, we are watching oil. It was lower overnight. Now it is mixed. West Texas is still off by Four tenths at 33.27, but Brent's higher by four tenths at 34.81. A big oil conference underway in Houston. We'll see uh, what news develops out of that later today. Currencies where the action is to the extent there is action today with the yen lower, the euro lower, the pound lower, dollar index barely higher on the day. The Australian dollar, Canada's loonie, stronger against the greenback. Those are commodity currencies. Gary Schilling says that won't last. President of A. Gary Schilling and Company back with a long list of things wrong with the global outlook. Currency pairs among them. Your February newsletter, um, quite the list of uh, issues that we have to face going forward. Well, well, we do. I mean, I, I think if you, if you look around the world, we've got, we've got slow growth. Um, we have virtually every country devaluing or trying to devalue Against the dollar, they're, they're, they want to have stronger economic growth. They don't have it domestically, so they say, "We'll turn to exports." How do you get more exports? You make your currency cheaper, make them more attractive to to, to foreigners. Um, so that's going on. Commodity prices are are declining. Too much supply, and we're seeing with BHP Billiton cutting their dividends today, a, a clear indication of that. And Glencore, all, all these other uh, commodity producers in trouble, um, and. Uh, all this does uh, feed into a considerable threat of, of deflation, which uh, scares the daylights out of central banks. Commodity prices have not 
gone down in a month and a half. As a matter of fact, they're higher over the last month and a half. Um, and oil prices have stabilized, and inflation, according to the CPI last week, is higher. So... Interesting thing about uh, inflation, as a matter of fact, we, we've just taken a look at that, and and <clears throat> one of the uh, interesting things in the CPI is uh, 24% of that is what's called owner-imputed rent. The assumption is that you and I rent our houses from ourselves, assuming you own your house. Uh, that's the way it is in there. And because rents have gone up, a lot of younger people cannot afford their own houses, uh, and so renting has been where the action is. That index is up uh, 3.2% versus a year ago. If you take that out, and what matter does that mean? If you own your house, you, you look around and say, this is what I can rent it for, my, for myself for. If you take that out, it knocks yeah. the, it knocks the uh, core but index if you, uh, if you, down. If you took that out, then inflation wouldn't have fallen as much when home prices were going down. So that's sort of a... Where would the core rate be right now if you take out imputed real the, estate? The core rate would be one uh, year over year, 1.2 versus 1.8. Okay. 1.2 versus 1.8. Bloomberg surveillance this morning, folks. This Tuesday a morning brought to you by Invesco. <clears throat> Invesco believes it's time to bench the benchmarks and to consider active management and factor-based strategies. Find out more at Invesco.com slash high conviction. Gary, we started the uh, morning looking at the five-year, five-year forward, which is a chart very shilling friendly and suggests disinflation and deflation. To be clear, can the U.S. be in deflation or is that something that happens abroad? Well, I think it's, it's, a, uni- it's a universal situation. And of course, what has happened so far is it's been largely in commodities and spreading from there. The, the real question though, Tom, is Will it spread to services? If you look at Agreed. if you look in the cons, in the consumer U.S. consumer, uh, uh, goods prices are are declining at about a three percent annual rate, but services are still increasing about two percent. They are starting to roll over, and there is an effect from goods to services. For example, uh, people are laid off in the energy industry. They're not going into as many bars. They're they're not uh, they're not uh, going to as many movies. They're not. They're not getting as many haircuts if they have hair. I don't have to worry Kung about Fu that. Kung Fu pandas. In other words, it does spread to services. But that's the real question. Uh, well, what's your probability on that? I well, mean, I, th- I, think it, I, think it, I think the probability is over 50-50 that it will okay. because you simply have so much excess uh, supply in the world, and it's only a matter of time until people in the goods industry simply simply uh, 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 curtail their, their spending on services. Services inflation in the most recent CPI report was – up uh, three tenths after being up one tenth. Yeah, and I explained that. I just explained that, Mike. That, the... that was that was because of this. That but, was because uh, of this uh, extraordinary increase in this homeowner uh, 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 rent. On a on a uh, year over year basis, it's unchanged, two and a half percent. I mean, I, I'm not sure where the rolling over is. Well, if, if you if you look at if you look at uh, I'm I'm looking at the I'm looking at the components of the of not the CPI but the uh, the uh, Consumer uh, consumer spending index is what the Fed looks at. It's not the CPI. It's just a variation on that, but that's the one that I concentrate but on. But we showed, we showed, to Mike's point, we did show the Cleveland Fed measurement of inflation, which unambiguously is concave. Up. Well, you know, and, and I admit with any of these things, you can prove anything you want if you throw out enough stuff. Now, we do that they, every day. How'd you know? That's our formula on surveillance. How'd you know that? <laughs> but that's what you know. But that's what the, the Cleveland Fed and, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just a question: what do you what do you want to believe? 
Uh, as I say, in this case, I don't think you ought to include his owner imputed rent because nobody really thinks about it in but if terms didn't, of their behavior. Then, but then in Cleveland, have been as low as Cleveland they look at, the, they look at the, the things that people buy every day. Uh, and, and, you know, but you can come to almost any conclusion you want depending on where you start on this. Oil prices, $10 oil, your call, when? Uh, well, you know, one of the great forecasters historically said you should forecast what will happen or when it will happen, but not both. Uh, I don't have a time raising on that, but, you know, my rationale, Mike, and I've talked about it many times starting literally over a year ago on, on, on this show, uh, the rationale is that when you're, when you're in a, a price war, and that's what's going on, and OPEC is, you know, OPEC has, has ceased to exist as an effective cartel. The action has shifted to American frackers. But when you're in a situation where it's every man for himself and everybody's trying to produce more oil, you know, it's, it's like if you have a, if you have an intersection with four gas stations, one in each corner, somebody starts to uh, cut prices. The other, the other stations have to cut their prices in response. And it keeps going around the, around the, uh, the, the, the circle, the, the intersection. Where does it stop? It stops not at the price of running the station, not the, not the full cost. It stops at the price, the marginal cost, the cost of getting the gas off the tank or the, the tank truck plus, plus taxes. Well, in the case of oil, the marginal cost is somewhere to 10 to 20 bucks a barrel in the Permian Basin in Texas and even lower in the Persian Gulf. In other words, once the holes are drilled, once the oil is flowing, where, where, what, what well, is the cost of getting to market? Very, where does free cash flow disappear? Very quickly within that Newtonian analysis, does the U.S. drive the oil price boat? Or is it OPEC or is it non-OPEC? No, it's 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 the U.S. I think it's the U.S. now. It's it's not OPEC. OPEC is producing flat out. OPEC has some low-cost oil. They have some high-priced oil. <clears throat> and they get some but, geopolitics. But as an effective cartel, and I, I just did a report on that. The conditions for a cartel were wonderful earlier with OPEC. You know, there are only a few members. They've got a product where there's not many substitutes. Right, right, Everybody right, wants right. it. Now they don't have it. There are lots of substitutes. And they no longer have control. It's the American frankers. Okay. We'll come back. Gary Schilling with us uh, as we look at uh, price change amid an interesting mix of economics, finance, and investment. Michael McKee and Tom King, we do data checks. We do them cross-asset. Sterling, 140.92. It is weaker sterling today. It was a 140 handle. We have not gotten to a 139 yet, which will be headline uh, making. Dollar elevated slightly. Looking at strong yen, 112. 12, and we had a 111 uh, dollar yen uh, earlier this morning. This hour of surveillance brought to you by Volvo Cars White Plains. Visit VolvoCarsWhitePlains.com. Here is John Tucker with the latest news headlines. Uh, Michael and Tom, Republican presidential candidates, took last-minute appeals for support across Nevada. On the eve of today's caucuses, Marco Rubio, meantime, has been gathering support from Republican establishment figures. Since Friday, he's added 12 new congressional or gubernatorial endorsements, while Donald Trump and Ted Cruz have added none. The Syrian government says it accepts a proposed truce in that country. The official announcement comes a day after the U.S. and Russia agreed on a new ceasefire for Syria that will take effect on Saturday. In the eastern Netherlands, a commuter train derailed after slamming into a crane which was crossing the tracks. One person reported dead, six others injured. More than 160 passengers and crew slid down emergency chutes in swirling snow after an engine fire forced a Japan Airlines domestic flight to abort takeoff today. Global News 20.
24 hours a day, powered by 2,400 journalists in more than 150 news bureaus around the world. I'm John Tucker. Tom. Uh, John, thanks so much. Gary Schilling with us on economics, finance, investment, your destination, Bloomberg Surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by your Tri-State BMW centers. Visit them online at tristatebmw.com. At BMW, they make only one thing, the ultimate driving machine. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update is brought to you by Osner Amper. When entrepreneurs face challenges like choosing a business structure or access to capital, they call the accountants and advisors at Eisner Amper. Connect with them, EisnerAmper.com slash tech. Time's small size isn't stopping it from pursuing an acquisition of Yahoo's core business. People familiar with the matter say the $1.5 billion magazine owner has heard a presentation from Citigroup bankers on pursuing a deal to merge with Yahoo. Home Depot up 2.5% after fourth quarter profit topped analyst estimates. S&P E-mini futures, little change now, down a point. Dow E-mini futures up 3. NASDAQ E-mini futures down 7.5. The DAX in Germany is down 8 tenths percent. Ten-year Treasury down 9.30 seconds. The yield 1.78%. NYMEX crude oil up three tenths percent or eight cents at thirty three forty seven a barrel. COMEX gold up six tenths percent or six dollars seventy cents at twelve sixteen eighty an ounce. And the euro at a dollar oh nine nine seven. The yen one twelve point oh nine. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thanks so much, Michael. I'm going to have you uh, bring in our esteemed guest, but unfortunately his pocketbook's a little thin, so I've got to flog his book. It is coming up. On the 20th anniversary of the single most important book on price change ever written, it is what I call the blue book. It is called Deflation, Why It's Coming, Whether It's Good or Bad, and How Will It Affect Your Investments, Business, and Personal Affairs. I have put children to school on my royalty checks from Gary Schilling (laughs) on flogging this book. Mike, it is clarity personified on everything we get right and wrong about this pernicious and strange thing. Read Deflation. I just put it out on Twitter, and we'll flog it to death this morning as well. <laughs> I suppose Gary should... Cooper was in the movie. <laughs> I, I, it's become a collector's item. <laughs> I suppose we should ask, are, are we going to get to deflation? I, I think so. There's, there's just so much excess supply in the world, and if you look historically in this country... If you are in peacetime, and, you, and that's arguable, of course, but in peacetime, deflation is the norm. We've looked at we've looked at every year going back to 1749. I don't know about 1748, but from 1749 well, on, you could ask Tom. He was there. if you if you divide them into war wartime and peacetime, what you find in in wartime that the average inflation rate was five percent, and in peacetime it was a negative 1.2 percent. Now you say, why is that? Well, in wartime. You have excess spending led by government, too much too much demand relative to supply results. But in peacetime, the natural productivity growth, the other factors, expansion of the economy, uh, it tends to be deflationary. And and to say that's a lot of history, and and it's fairly consistent how, throughout that time. How are you measuring deflation then? Because I, ha- I know there's a lot of people out there who heard what you just said about uh, in peacetime we have deflation. Um, saying, what the hell is he talking about? 
Well, uh, these are, these are measured by wholesale prices, uh, and that's the most consistent numbers going back. Of course, the government data doesn't really go back before World War II, uh, but there are a lot of academic studies that piece things together based on commodity prices, and and uh, they, they tend to be uh, they tend to be wholesale prices, producer prices that, that go back that far. Uh, but but you know, I think I think there's cons- enough consistency to say it probably does measure it. And, of course, there's always lots of problems with measuring inflation, deflation. I mean, for example, uh, Tom, was, Tom was showing me either his cell phone and the powerful cell phone. Well, you know, that a lot of that is not really reflected uh, reflected in the price indices. In other words, you're getting a lot more power there per dollar that you spend to buy a new cell phone. But that is not reflected so you're in the price indices. So you're imputing deflation. I mean, are there actual numbers that would show this? Well, the, the Commerce Department... Uh, they, they try to they try to impute these things, uh, and whether they're whether they do it correctly or not is always always a question. But you know the the interesting thing is if you look at, at uh, I've got a chart showing expectations of of inflation uh, surveys, and people always overestimate inflation. Yeah, uh, it, it's consistent because what happens when anything where the price goes up, you say that's the devil personified. Uh, giving me a raw deal. If prices go down, I'm a good bargainer. Boy, I know how to shop. I, I get a, I get a good price. So people yeah. consistently overestimate uh, inflation. Gary, why should we fear deflation? Is it about wealth destruction? Does it say something about a nation? Well, deflation. You know, in in in, in that book uh, I wrote, you know, deflation, <laughs> whether it's good or bad. You can have good Folks, inflation. that would be the blue book, deflation, why it's coming, whether it's good or bad, and how it will affect your investments, business, and personal affairs. It's out on Facebook and Twitter right now. Continue. Thank you, Tom. You, your, your royalty just went up on that. Uh, your, your, uh, well, you can have good deflation like you had in the 1920s. Uh, basically, it was because of huge productivity increases, two big Two big new uh, drivers. One was mass-produced cars, and that brought with it roads, bridges, etc., hotels, etc. And the other was electrification of homes and factories. And you got with that appliances. You couldn't run a radio without it. And and that's that's good deflation. In other words, you have an excess supply. Uh, you can have the bad deflation of deficient demand, and that's what you had in the 30s. Uh, and and so in other words, you you get the deflation with supply exceeding demand, but how do you get there? Does supply go up or does demand go down? Now, what's happening right now? Well, what's happening right now is a little of both. And the reason that central banks are so scared of it is because of the of the of the bad deflation of the last 20 years in Japan. Uh, and what happens there is that prices are declining, and people say, "I'm going to wait to buy," and when everybody waits to buy, you know, let's say you need a new car, and you say, well, prices are, de- are declining. I'll wait to buy because I can get one cheaper later. Well, everybody waits. The, 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 the uh, cars pile up on the dealer's lots. It pushes prices down. Suspicions confirmed. As a result, you get slow growth. Japan in the last 20 years has had real GDP growth of 1.1% uh, annually on average. <clears throat> and and they've had deflation more years than not. And that's what scares yeah, the daylight out of the I agree. Bank. I agree that it's about <clears throat> GDP and a wealth construct of a nation. And it, it, it's also about debt. And another, and this is another concern of central banks. because And they, they talk about this all the time uh, because debt in real terms goes up. In other words, if you have a debt, you owe somebody a million okay. dollars. Okay, that is not going to change in deflation. But your income, your profits, your ability to service that debt are going to go down. Okay. 
So it increases bankruptcies and discourages borrowing. Gary, thank you so much. Gary Schilling with us. Thanks for the huge response out on social media to Mr. Schilling's appearance today. Futures were negative four. Schilling lifts the market. We're flat. It's Bloomberg surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by SCNB, the bank for business, is on the move. Are you looking for a right banking partner? Go to SCNB.com to learn more. Now open in Long Island City. Get your business moving with SCNB. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning. It is 730 on Wall Street. I'm Michael McKee along with Tom Keen. We're two hours away from the opening of trading today with futures flat on the day. Here's some of the news you need to know from American companies. Home Depot, fourth quarter earnings per share, $1.17, better than the estimate of $1.10. Revenue of $20.98 billion, better than the $20.4 billion consensus forecast. Home Depot shares up by, uh, at this point, 2.6%. Uh, uh, in early trading. Western Digital plans to buy SanDisk for about $19 billion in cash and shares. Western Digital will pay $67.50 a share in cash and just under a quarter of a share. Western Digital shares down by 6.7%. SanDisk shares off 4.7%. United Technology says it walked away from preliminary talks about a merger with Honeywell due in part to concerns that a deal wouldn't win approval from antitrust authorities. Honeywell last week offering $108 a share for United Technologies. And Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates siding with the government in its dispute over Apple's refusal to break into a terrorist iPhone. That, according to the Financial Times, Gates will be with us in about 30 minutes here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Now let's check in with John Tucker at the latest world and national headlines. John? And good morning, Michael. Polls show Donald Trump poised to win his third consecutive Republican presidential nominating contest tonight when Nevada holds its caucuses, low participation, an electoral system that rewards political insiders could diminish the magnitude of any victory. Latest Quinnipiac poll has Donald Trump leading Ohio Governor John Kasich 31 to 26 percent among the state's likely Republican presidential primary voters. Winning his home state's March 15th primary is critical to Kasich's presidential bid. And uh, members of Congress trying to head off a New Jersey transit strike authorized for March 13th. The last time New Jersey railroad employees walked off the job was 33 years ago. It displaced Manhattan commuters. They turned to fill in charter buses for more than a month. Global News, 24 hours a day. Powered by our 2,400 journalists in more than 150 news bureaus around the world. I'm John Tucker. Michael. Time now for the Ray Katina Auto Group Bloomberg NBC Sports Update with John Stashauer. John. All right, Mike, things going from bad to worse for the Knicks, who had a little over a month ago were 500, trying to make the playoffs. They're 2-12 and 12 since. They've lost six straight at home. Only Brooklyn and Philadelphia are behind them in the East. Last night, Toronto won the second quarter 31-15 to and won the game 122-95. to Knicks coach Kurt Rambis watched the Raptors shoot 53%. It takes five guys to stop the ball. It's not just the two guys involved intimately in the pick and roll. It takes all five guys. And if, if we can't get all five guys engaged, one guy, one guy makes a mistake, 
that's all that's all a good offensive team needs. Knicks visit Indiana tomorrow. Nets visit Portland tonight to start a nine game road trip. Golden State last night won at Atlanta. The Warriors fifty and five, fastest ever to fifty wins. Rangers visit the slumping Devils tonight. College hoops Miami beat third ranked Virginia. Locally Iona Blew a 25-point lead, but still won at Siena, 87-81. Antonio Cromartie's second stint as a Jets cornerback is over. Released one season into a four-year contract. He was a disappointment in the Jets' secondary. It saves them $8 million on the salary cap. With the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update, I'm John Stashel. Thank you, John. As we mentioned, futures at the moment are basically flat with oil prices now higher on the day. West Texas up by a tenth of a percent. Brent crude up eight-tenths of a percent. You're listening to Bloomberg Surveillance. This is Bloomberg Radio Worldwide. Welcome back to Surveillance. I'm Michael McKee along with Tom Keene on a day where we aren't certain where markets are going to open. S&P futures unchanged at the moment. Dow E-mini futures are up just six points. That's less than a tenth of a percent. NASDAQ futures the only clear direction at the moment off seven points. That is uh, almost two-tenths of a percent, although they have paired their losses as well. The stock 600 off by a point right now, two-tenths of a percent. The Bloomberg NJIT STEM report is brought to you by New Jersey Institute of Technology, partnering with government and industry to apply the university's world-class research assets to innovate and spur economic growth. Learn more at njit.edu. Here's Bob Moon. Michael, thanks very much. And at 7.35 on Wall Street, here's what's making news in science, technology, engineering, and math. Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates is backing the government in that dispute with Apple over a terrorist iPhone. Industry leaders are generally siding with Apple, which is refusing a court order to help the FBI break into the device. Gates tells the Financial Times the government order is really no different than asking for bank and telephone records. Apple has warned the order creates a dangerous precedent. And a reminder, please join us at 8 a.m. Wall Street time when we speak to Bill and Melinda Gates on both Bloomberg Radio and Television. And that is this morning's Bloomberg NJIT STEM Report. Bob Moon, thank you very much. Well, we raised a question yesterday with Lisa Abramowitz about the exposure of banks to the energy sector. And there was some question about just how bad things might get. Gerard Cassidy of RBC Capital Markets, our old friend, has actually been looking into this. And he has some numbers on it all. And I might start by noting, Gerard, I I think you're attending J.P. Morgan's Investor Day today. The bank putting out a statement suggesting that if oil prices stay about where they are, uh, it would mean $750 million in additional reserves for them. If they drop to $25, it's $1.5 billion, which sounds like a lot of money, but in the context of these big banks, the energy exposure, you write, aren't that bad. isn't that bad. That's correct, Mike. When you especially, uh, Specifically, if you look at J.P. Morgan, we have to put it in the context of their earnings last year. They earned $24 billion. So even if they were to see oil prices go to 25, I think it's very manageable. And that's true for the top 20 banks. 
when we look at the exposure for the top 20 banks, as a percentage of total loans, it's about 5.5%. So it's very manageable, even at these very low prices. Now, uh, the rest of the banks, uh, been, we've had this sell-off this year because people are concerned that the banking industry could blow up over oil prices, especially when we get to the March resets on loans to some of these energy companies that may not be able to make it go at 25 to $30 oil. No, I think that's contributed to the sell-off. I, I would agree with you. Unfortunately, we think it's a little misplaced. I, I, I would be more concerned about the Fed not raising Fed fund rates this year, which I think has been the main contributor to the sell-off, than I would about the energy concerns, because we're not expecting any deprecation of book value, suggesting losses that would reduce your book value. This is really different than the 1980s, when the exposure to energy was much greater, and we lost nine out of the ten largest banks in Texas due to the drop in oil prices. Are we going to lose any banks, even smaller banks? That's an interesting question, Mike, because there's a possibility the smaller banks that are physically located in Texas, in Houston or Midland, that have commercial real estate loans on top of oil loans, those are the vulnerable ones. But at this point, it's too early to say that. But clearly, the smaller banks would be far more vulnerable because of the commercial real estate exposure than just energy exposure. But you say we should worry more about Janet Yellen sitting on her hands. I think that's the real issue here, and if we see the U.S. economy gaining some strength in the spring with the housing market, and there's a nascent pickup in manufacturing in the last 30 days, if that starts to accelerate even further because of the strength of the auto industry and the Fed decides to move come June, nobody expect a March move, that would be a real positive for the bank stocks. Before I let you go, J.P. Morgan, ahead of Investor Day, has released a set of slides and a statement uh, basically suggesting that, uh, as usual, things are just fine over at Fortress Diamond. Uh, they're forecasting a 14 to 15 percent return on tangible common equity over a three-year profit outlook. Um, what do you think of what they are saying this morning so far? Uh, what they've released in their slide deck is very impressive. They tell you that they have shown the best growth amongst our biggest banks. And most importantly, what drives value for the stocks, all stocks, not just J.P. Morgan, is the growth in tangible book value. And they demonstrate with their uh, numbers how they have been a leading creator of tangible book value growth. And I expect that to continue because of the strength of that management team and the position that that their businesses are in, not only here in the U.S., but around the globe. Interesting. Uh, Jamie Dimon suggests they're going to focus on uh, still cutting expenses. Uh, Mike, that is still a huge issue for the industry, particularly even if the Fed raises rates once or twice this year. We need to see a number of branches shut down in this industry as technology in the digital channel is making huge advances in delivering retail product. And I think this is going to lead to bigger consolidation in 2017 as well. Gerard Cassidy, RBC Capital Markets, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we'll let you get over to uh, talk with Mr. Diamond and Company and uh, see what else you can learn. Have you back soon here on Bloomberg Surveillance. J.P. Morgan shares um, just beginning to trade in pre-market down by about half a percent uh, right now, $58.30. No uh, significant movement. They were up 1.3% yesterday uh, on the day. Uh, as we continue to monitor futures markets, generally flat S&P 
Dow futures are flat right now. NASDAQ futures off by a tenth of a percent. This is Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer. When it comes to winter elements, put your best four wheels forward with Mercedes-Benz 4 all-wheel drive. Visit your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer for a test drive today. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by CBOE VIX Options and Futures. Volatility can be harnessed with CBOE VIX Options and Futures. See disclosures and learn more at cboe.com slash powerful outcomes VIX. Futures are now little change with S&P E-mini futures down a point. Dow E-mini futures up six and NASDAQ E-mini futures down seven. The DAX in Germany is down eight tenths percent. Ten-year Treasury down nine thirty seconds. The yield 1.78 percent. Yield on the two-year 0.76 percent. NYMEX crude oil down three tenths percent or ten cents to 33.29 a barrel. COMEX gold up six tenths percent or seven dollars twenty cents at 12.17.30 an ounce. The euros at a dollar ten oh four, the yen at one twelve, and that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Thank you, Karen. It is election day again, yet again. This time it is the Nevada Republican caucuses underway, or they will be uh, when people wake up out there. Good morning, Las Vegas, and good morning to Chuck Todd. He's the host of NBC's Meet the Press. You can hear it Sundays here on Bloomberg Radio, 11 o'clock and 3 o'clock. Chuck, uh, did you manage to scam a trip to Vegas for this uh, so you can report on this? Well, I, I was in Vegas last week. Like this, I don't want people to get their hopes up. This is the um, the Nevada Republican Party uh, last year took three days to count 33,000 uh, ballots. I, I'm not <laughs> I'm not very confident that we're going to know much tonight. So anybody that thought about staying up to watch coverage tonight, um, I know my bosses won't like me saying this, but it isn't worth it. Just <laughs> just uh, get up in the morning. Um, Turn on Bloomberg Radio and, and, and uh, find out what happened. And, and, and find out what happened. There you go. He's got it down, the, 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 the shameless plug. Um, is this going to matter in the long run, uh, given that – Nevada? Nevada won't matter a bit unless unless somehow Trump loses. Is there any chance right? of that then at this was, point? I mean, he uh, owns a casino you know, out there. He's, you know, or his name the is – The only reason I think there's a chance is this is such an arcane – nobody knows about it, and, and meaning, you know, it had a – and it's a paltry turnout four years ago. Marco Rubio is the only person that's organized. So, you know, it's the last test that's all about organization more than popularity. So, look, I, I know everybody assumes Trump's going to win. And, I, you know, if just the casual if casual people show up, he will. But, you know, I wouldn't – I'd be surprised but not shocked if somehow Rubio won. I want to stay on the Republicans for a moment and uh, talk about Super Tuesday. The narrative on the Democratic side is we go into the Super Tuesday southern states, you bring in the minority voters, and that helps Hillary Clinton. We go into Super Tuesday, we bring in the minority voters to the extent they vote in the Republican primaries. How does that affect the Donald and or uh, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz? Well, there are not that many minority voters voting in the Republican primaries. Um Outside of Florida and Texas, there is a, a chunk of the Hispanic vote uh, in both states uh, that will show up in Texas, you know, 10, 15 percent, but not not a significant amount to have to have much of an impact mm-hmm. uh, on the Republican side. I mean, it, it, it's just it's just the nature of the Republican electorate right now. But uh, going into Super Tuesday, look, I, I think Super Tuesday is more about trying to figure out if you're Marco Rubio, you're, you're 
you're you're secretly hoping for Trump to win at least one state, and that state is Texas, because the, the that cleanest takes out way Cruz, yeah, yeah, yeah. it takes out yeah. Cruz. The cleanest way for Rubio to get yeah. into his one-on-one is to get Cruz out of this, and the fastest way to to sort of yeah. force Cruz out is to embarrass him, uh, is to basically say, hey, you couldn't even win your home state. It's time to go. Right. Chuck, what you do so well is a national minutia. Uh, Mr. Kasich enjoying the Sandy Springs City Hall last night in Newt Gingrich's Georgia. (laughs) I remember Newt four years ago. I guess he took Georgia. Tell me about adjacency in the Super Tuesday states. We understand Mr. Sanders and adjacency to New Hampshire. Does Mr. Rubio have adjacency with Georgia, or is he as just foreign there as Mr. Trump? Yeah, it's just as foreign there. And that part of that is because, it, look, it only helps if you share media markets, right? Vermont and New Hampshire actually share media markets. People that live in Vermont watch New Hampshire television, vice versa. Yeah. Um, that, that's why you get that neighboring state thing helps. Ditto with Massachusetts, New Hampshire, things like that. That doesn't exist really with Florida and Georgia. I mean, outside of Jacksonville, you know, that, that is a shared media once market. Once a year in October. Tallahassee. And once, right, it's the largest cocktail party. And it's really only yeah, about exactly. a college football game than anything else. So, um, no, there, there isn't that sort of, uh, that sort of impact, um, particularly Florida, just because Florida has got so many, uh, of its own unique media market. So that isn't, that isn't going to help him. Look, what Rubio needs, actually what Rubio needs right now is Kasich to get out. Kasich right. is arguably a bigger problem for him going into Super Tuesday than Cruz. Eventually he needs Cruz out of the way. But Kasich is in the way right now. Well, one of the problems there is that Kasich, uh, while Rubio piles up the political endorsements, Kasich's piling up the money announcing a series of hedge fund uh, helpers over the last couple of days. Well, we'll see if, he, if it's real. I mean, you know, he's had a few people, but how big are the checks are they going to write? Are they writing $5 million yeah. checks or are they writing $250,000 checks for that super PAC? Yeah. That's a big difference. Chuck, what is the distinctive feature of this Super Tuesday? I mean, I went back and I skimmed the history of them back to, I believe it was 1976 is when we started this ballet. You were there, I know, covering all 47 <laughs> states, whatever it was. But it's Super Tuesday. I get the Southern thing, Massachusetts, Bernie's going to do this. Is the so what that we're a lot smarter on Super Wednesday the day after? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, if you say what's the distinguishing characteristic of this one is that it's back to being distinct, uh, mostly Southern. You know, the whole Super Tuesday started as a Southern idea, uh, was back when Southern Democrats were looking for a way to stop liberal from getting the Democratic nomination. So back, back in the day, that was its original origin. It was about stopping the, doing, trying to come up with a strategy to, to get the Bill Clintons of the world, or at the time Chuck Robb, who was a rising star in Virginia at the time, give them an opportunity to pile up delegates. But it's never, the irony is that it never worked out that way um, when, when they did it. And, and it's not going to work out this time. This time, Super Tuesday was an attempt by conservatives as a way to, to, to submit right. a conservative alternative. And it was supposed to be Ted Cruz's day, and it's not going right. to Mike, I know you want to get back to serious politics, but i got a, a critically important question for Mr. Todd. Are you using the word liberal or progressive now? There's a shift going on, oh, isn't there? Oh, that's interesting. Look, I, <clears throat> I, I interchange it when I describe the left of the, of the party. My feeling is I'm always one of those. I, I call people by what they want to be called by. You know, okay. if people want to be called pro-life in the abortion movement and pro-choice in the abortion movement, 
then call them pro-life and pro-choice. I know there's this argument in journalism communities. Oh, it's anti-abortion rights activists. It's pro-abortion rights activists. Yeah, yeah. You know, look, if people want to be called progressive instead of liberal, fine. If you want to be called conservative instead of moderate, fine. You know, that you call people what they want to be called. And the left of the Democratic Party wants to be called progressive. Okay. (laughs) And some people uh, get mad if you don't call them progressive. Um, Let's talk about that side of the party and the race, uh, the Super Tuesday race. Uh, how much? Uh, obviously, Bernie Sanders is going to have the money to compete, but how much competition is he actually going to? Uh, well, actually, know, I'm. I'm a, he's he's got less money than I expected. He's been out raising her, but he uh, he he spent more than I. He's, we went through more money than he should have in January. He burned through a lot of cash. Um, that's money that right now could be spent making a Virginia or a Texas more competitive. And this is the mistake that I think he's made. He's not playing to win on Super Tuesday. He's just playing to accumulate 40% of the delegates. And that's fine. He's going to be able to accumulate 40% of the delegates. And that's not a bad, that's not a bad showing if you think about where Bernie Sanders was nine months ago. But if you're playing to win the nomination, you're going to have to beat her in a place like Texas or Virginia or Tennessee or Georgia, the four biggest states. Before, you know, and, and I, I would argue that Tennessee, Virginia, Texas, look, none of them demographically are ideal for Sanders. But those three have um, African-American electorates that are under 40 percent. So it's it's something that he should be making a more of an effort to do. And he's not. Yeah, I've heard the the Sanders campaign say, well, Michigan is where we can really do well a week later. because uh, By then, that's 13 yeah. states late. And I yeah, nice, try. Under the rules of the Democratic Party, especially with the superdelegates already in Hillary's camp, uh, then it becomes impossible math almost. Well, forget, let's just set the superdelegates aside. She's going to build a lead without superdelegates. And then the superdelegates are the icing. And that, that, that's, of course, the only way really to, to, no. to use the superdelegates. You can't, you know, superdelegates aren't, aren't going to stick with you if you're not winning. But uh, she's, she's going to build a small but durable lead within the next 10 days, and and he won't be able to catch her. Chuck Todd, thank you very much. We'll check in with you next week. Uh, It'll be Super Tuesday. Um, That's going to be fascinating. It's going to be a very interesting day because it could go a very long way to determining how this whole race plays out. Mike, what do we make of the Japanese yen? 111.89, 111.89, a if you full fold it right, figure. it's origami. Um, yeah, real, well, it's origami monetary policy. I thought maybe. it was. I don't uh, know what to make of it. I thought it was interesting uh, to, uh, earlier today when you were talking about the possibility of of parity on the on the yen. That that it would be certainly the yeah. worst nightmare for uh, Abenomics. But uh, we heard from Kuroda, the central bank governor, Kuroda-san, overnight uh, suggesting that maybe monetary policy can't do it all, or at least QE can't do it all, and they may go even more negative, uh, use interest rates to try to get some movement there, drop the uh, yeah. drop the yen. Yeah, there's some real interesting nuances out there. No, I don't want to get hysterical this morning because it's not that look. But nevertheless, there's subtleties on the Bloomberg screen. Futures negative three, Dow futures negative 12. Oil, a churn and flat now all over the place this morning. 33.25 on American West Texas Intermediate. Michael McKeon, Tom Keen, bonus. Another hour of Bloomberg surveillance.